0: Last night, as he was sharing, I felt a weightiness begin to enter the room, uh, a breadth and a depth. And we talked about it a bit today. And, and his, his description of it is, I, he said, I think sometimes we forget that the Word is the Word of God, that Jesus is the Word. And the manifestation of the Word of God is its own authority, and so we want to really draw on that tonight. As we are worshiping, we are asking God, not necessarily for a frothy experience, something that that makes us feel one way or another, but if see, if we have an emotional moment that catalyzes certain feelings and gives us a sense, "Oh, God loves me," that's great." But sometimes we might miss the deeper more prolonged work that the Word of God can do in our hearts. And so as we're worshiping today and as we're honoring the Lord, as we step into this this wake of the presence of God tonight, I want you to begin to expect the deep of the Word of God to shift things in your life that can't be shifted by typical week-to-week ministry. I believe that there's a, a Kairos moment that can be made available for us today. And even as I'm sharing this, I just, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the significance of that deep of Christ. But I, I feel like I don't have the words to communicate what is really available in him. And so I'm just going to say, Father, we love you. We love the things that you are releasing that belong to Jesus. We love the fact that you have sent the Holy Spirit to take of that which belongs to Christ and to minister it to your people. And so, Lord, even as the Word says, deep calls unto the deep. Lord, I pray that that part of us that is deep within us that needs that deep shift will begin to draw upon the immensity of who you are as the son of God, as the creator of all things. We say word of God, come in like a tsunami, slow moving, heavy waters. Lord, we want to see that slow moving, heavy, deep waters to shift those those things in our life, Lord, that could otherwise take years to pluck away at lord we ask for the deep things in our heart to shift we want to want you we want to have a passion for you that maybe we don't have right now we want to believe and trust you but lord these things come by the workmanship of god the grace of god the word of god at work in us and they are greater than us and we say come lord Come Holy Spirit, oh, we need you tonight. Mark was just, said uh, he was feeling like there are some people here today who you know the Lord, but you're not sure sometimes if he really loves you, and he felt like if that was you, and that you came and worshiped the Lord in the front. The Lord was going to meet you. You know, there's something about proximity. Joshua sat at the at the tent of meeting right at the boundary. He got as close as he could, and he lingered there for a long time. And we know God is omniscient, but the manifestation of God is is distinct to geographic areas. And there's something about drawing near. There's something about humbling ourselves. There's something about stepping out and offering a sacrifice of praise. And so I'd encourage you, if that's you, just come while we're worshiping and just just worship him in the front. Father, we ask that you would do what you did with Mary When you prophesied over her, a sword will pierce your own soul. And so, Lord, we invite that Hebrews 4.12 experience the word coming in, dividing between soul and spirit and bone and marrow and revealing the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, do that deep work in us tonight do it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we are receiving Mark tonight, I encourage you to draw upon the Word. And even right now, just put your hand on your heart and say, heart, draw upon the Word of God today in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. So,
1: Mark, bless you. Come on. How's everybody? Are you alive? If you're dead, raise a hand. (laughs) Years ago, I was ministering way in the outback of, um, uh, where were we, Southeast Africa somewhere. And uh, this one native couple I was with, they're, uh, as I said, a native couple, but they've started, I don't know, about 60 churches. And where they start churches at is in predominantly Muslim villages, and these Muslim villages are out in the bush, no electricity. Typically, the Muslim village will have a population of anywhere from 300 to 700 or 800. And I said to them, well, how difficult is it to start a Muslim church and start, or start a Christian work in a Muslim village? And they said, actually, it's very easy. You just find the sickest person there. Uh, you get him healed, and everybody comes to Christ. And uh, at that time, this is about eight years ago, between the two of them, they had raised six people from the dead. Uh, the wife had actually raised four of those people from the dead. So I always tell Christian women, you don't need to wait around until your husband raises the dead. Just go start doing it. But he had raised two people from the dead. And they had a prophecy over me that I soon see someone in our ministry raised from the dead. Uh, unfortunately, soon in biblical language can mean a lot of things. But I always tell people, if when we, from the time we start a conference to the time we end a conference, if you die, right before you die, make sure you tell the person you're with to make sure they get your dead body back to the conference so I can pray for you. I just want to have a shot at it, you know. <laughs> a friend of mine, an Australian guy, he was a missionary for a while, way out in the middle of Indonesia, way out ministering to people in, uh, you know, uh, tribe, tribal area. And uh, there was a knock on his door once about two o'clock in the morning and there were some people from a tribe about three hours walk away through these jungle you know, trails. And so they indicated he had to come with them so he leaves in the middle of the night, he walks about three or four hours and they take him to this one hut and as he got to the hut it really stunk badly. And they got in there and what it was was the chief of the tribe had died. And, you know, this is out in the jungle heat, and the body has been dead for two or three days, and it just stinks. And he's seen some healings and miracles, but never done anything like this. And uh, they don't speak much uh, English, and he didn't learn much of their uh, uh, dialect, but he understands they wanted to raise this guy from the dead. And so he's just saying, okay, God, I'm going to give it a shot. So he's uh, standing behind the head, and he's gingerly putting his hands on this dead head, you know. And he's just, oh, God, you know, and he's just praying quietly in his heart and tongues, wondering, oh, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? And he's just about to get up his nerve and say, come alive in the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he feels the whole body begin to shake. And he opens his eyes says, it's happening, it's happening, God's raising the dead. And he looks down at the end of the body, and some of the Christians there in the tribe are so excited. They've got to hold their feet, and they're pushing on him. And he said, that's it. I'm out of here. (laughs) So, you know, it's all all different sort of things going on there. But I I want to uh, talk about, uh, uh, for you as a church, what I feel is a a really timely word and uh, prophecy. There's all sorts of ins and outs with it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I want to tell you about a sister church of yours that you don't even know you have. It's actually in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. See, I told you you didn't know you had a sister church there. The pastor's name is Mark and his wife's name is Wendy. Hey! And uh, I want to tell you about the uh, first time I went there. Maybe it was the second time. And uh, the mother and her son, by the name of Lisa and Ryan, have given me permission to tell their story. We've shot a video testimony that we have, I think, on our website. And uh, this was maybe about six years ago. Ryan, at that time, was, I think, about 18 years old, and he had walked away from God. Uh, He'd grown up in supposedly a Christian family, and he was about 12 or so. His father abandoned his mother and he and his sister for another woman, and uh, Ryan just got really angry at everything and angry at God and walked away from God. But now at uh, 17, 18 years old, he's getting into all sorts of trouble. He's been in trouble with the police. He's doing drugs and he's doing all sorts of uh, things sexually, and his mother is getting more and more fed up with him. And she gave him an ultimatum that uh, uh, Lisa actually at that time did not go to this church, But she had read about this conference, prophetic conference we were doing with me. And so she said, okay, I'm going to come. And she said to her son, Ryan, either you come to these meetings with me or I'm kicking you out of the house. Now, to be kicked out of a house in Canada, you know, where you have all this stuff called snow and cold weather, it's no laughing matter. I'm not convinced that when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he ever said, come this far north. (laughs) You know, I don't know, I just don't understand that. But anyway, so, you know, Ryan does not want to go to church, but he doesn't want to end up out in the streets either, so he came with his mother to church, and he sits down the very back. His mom says, no, you come up front. And so she forced him to sit down with him on the second row. And Ryan's a tall guy, about my height, but he's a weightlifter, you know, really buffed and all that. And he's sitting here the whole meeting like this, just glaring with major attitude. And I don't know anything about him. I just know that it's obvious he doesn't really want to be there. He didn't have to be prophetic for that. And uh, during the ministry time, I felt like the Lord said to pray for people with bad backs, especially bad neck and shoulder problems. A bunch of people come up. About six weeks before, Ryan had a weightlifting accident, and he really messed up his shoulder and neck. And for now six weeks, he'd been unable to turn his head to the left more than that. And he lived in constant pain. He had not been to lift weights, hardly do anything. And he had just been to a chiropractor a day or two before this meeting. The chiropractor said, you have no idea how much you've messed up your neck and shoulder. You're probably going to have to go through therapy at least three or four times a week for two months before it's going to come back to normal. So he's angry at life, angry at his mom, angry at God, just angry at everything, and he doesn't want to be there. And I call up people for bad necks, shoulders, backs, and we're praying for them. And some of the people, you can tell, are being powerfully touched by the Lord. And Ryan is just sitting there in the second seat. He refused to come forward, and he's kind of laughing at these people, mocking these people. And he's saying to himself, there is no God, and even if there is a God, he's not touching these people. They're just off in psycholand," you know. But then the Lord gave me a follow-up word, and it went something like this. I said, there's somebody who you really should have come up here for a messed up neck and shoulder. And I said, the Lord knows why you didn't come up here. I said, that's cool. God's bigger than that. But just right where you are, right where you're seated, just hold your hands out to the Lord. Now, Ryan's beginning to get a sense that maybe something's happening here, and he doesn't like it. But he looks all around to make sure nobody's looking at him. And I said, You know, just hold your hands out to the Lord. And so, in a very overt, uh, covert way, to make sure there's no one looking, he puts his hands on his lap and he goes like this. The second he did that, his neck and shoulder got 100% healed. All the pain is gone, all the movements restored. About 20 minutes later, I don't know what else we were praying for, but Ryan came up with a group of people and gave his life to the Lord Jesus. So now it's late. We're doing a lot of ministry. It's about uh, 11 o'clock at night. And uh, Lisa, Ryan's mom, she's just uh, you know amazed that Ryan has given his life to the Lord. He's been kneeling up front, engaged in worship and his neck's healed, but she wants to go home, and she can't find him anywhere. She goes walking out to the car. He's not there. She goes walking back in the church, looks around, goes in the sanctuary. He's not there. Goes goes back out into the parking lot, and this church has kind of like a gravel parking lot, and she sees uh, or hears some teenagers off in one section. It sounds like they're praying in tongues, and she said, Well, surely Ryan's not going to be with that group but she sees a pair of Nikes sticking up in the air, like the backs on the ground and the legs are sticking up, and they're brand new Nikes, and she had just bought Ryan a brand new pair of Nikes, and she thought that couldn't be uh, Ryan, and she walks over and there's Ryan, What had happened is these teenagers in the church had kind of accosted Ryan walking out and said, hey, we saw you go up and give your life to the Lord. Can we pray for you? So they took him out of the parking lot, prayed for him. He got slam dunked, filled with the Holy Spirit, and started speaking in tongues. And he's lying in the parking lot on his back with his legs sticking straight up in the air. And so Lisa has to have their help getting him into the car. And the whole way home, he's just speaking in tongues at the top of his voice. So finally, you know, she gets him home, and she's in bed. She can't sleep at all that night, because every half hour, he's knocking on her door, waking her up, saying, Mom, I started reading my Bible, and this is what God is saying to me. And this went on throughout the whole night. She comes down in the morning, and there's this big bag in the kitchen floor, and it's filled with all the porno mags that Ryan had. She didn't even know she had. But God completely turned Ryan's life around, and Ryan got free of all the stuff. Ryan started getting serious about school. He started studying Chinese because he has a vision about going to China for missionary work, and he's now based in a church in Scarborough in Toronto, Canada, uh, working with youth there, and he's been through a school of ministry in Toronto as well. And I tell you this story because uh, I mentioned last night we were praying for people with stomach issues, that sometimes we think, I've got to have faith, I've got to have faith, but I'm not feeling. Well, for one thing, faith is not feeling. Faith is what you do. But for another thing, God never said, Jesus never said, if you have a mountain of faith, you can move a mustard seed of a problem. He said if you just have a little bit of faith, you can move a mountain. And a mountain was a metaphor for an unmovable problem in your life. And I, I'm sharing this with you uh, to encourage you because I really have a sense there's some of you here, as I was talking about last night, God has more for those who love him, more than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, more than we can understand. But the Lord wants to meet with some of you tonight. And when we say that, we have all these questions. Well, have I prayed enough? Am I spiritual enough? Am I this enough? Have I done that enough? But the fact that you're here tonight means you have a mustard seed of faith. And during the uh, ministry time, even the fact that you're a little bit open means you have enough to receive from God. Turn to the person next to you and say, I know it's hard, but try not to look quite as excited as you do right now. (laughs) I want to give a couple of uh, short prophetic words. The young girl there in the brown t-shirt, what is your name? What is your name? Amen. Amen? Amen? Amen. Did I say that right? Okay. Amen, I this is, uh, the Lord gave me a short word for you. I saw you come up and, and get involved in worship. And this is actually out of Lamentations uh, chapter 3, verses 55, 56, 57. But uh, it says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my cry. Do not close your ear to my cry, be my help. And you, Lord, you came near when I called upon you, and you said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord, and you have redeemed my life. And I want to encourage you that uh, there's some things I think that maybe you haven't told anybody about, but you've been really crying out to the Lord for. And the Lord just wants to encourage you tonight. He's been hearing that cry of your heart. And there's even some things that maybe you think are lost, but he's going to redeem for your life. Does that make sense to you? Good, good. And uh, there's a young woman in the very back. Uh, you've got glasses on. You're in the very corner. What, what is your name? Yeah. Dietrich. Deidre. Can't you have some names like <laughs> Beth or <laughs> <laughs> Deidre? Okay, I'll take a shot at that. Uh, Deidre, I, I, I was looking around during worship, and I'm a little bit ADD, so, but I, I saw you, and I felt like the Lord wanted to encourage you, that I saw, uh, as you were lifting your hands during worship, I saw a torch in each hand, and those torches are symbolic of two different things, that uh, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies, he carried in one hand a firepan full of coals of fire that he would throw the incense on as he came into the Holy of Holies. And I felt like the Lord said, he's really giving you in this season of your life a fresh heart for worship and prayer and entering into the presence of the Lord. And the light of the Lord's presence is with you. But the torch you had in your other hand, I was uh, thinking about John Wesley, that the great revivalist from England. He was asked one time, how do you start a revival? And he said, I collect a crowd, I light myself on fire, and I let people watch me burn for God. And I felt like the Lord wanted to encourage you that people around you, and I don't know whether it's work or school, whatever you're doing, but people around you notice you. There is something very visible of Christ, the presence of Christ upon your life. And I wanna encourage you that you're gonna go on to be a woman of real influence for the kingdom of God that God has given you a torch of the fire of his presence. And uh, I just bless you in the name of Jesus to have a real boldness for evangelism. Do these two words make sense to you? Just kind of say yes, I'll take them. So. <laughs> Good. Okay, um, let's get into things. I want to talk about the uh, uh, this prophetic word I have for you and As I shared last night, I I love the prophetic. I've been teaching and training on it for over 30 years internationally. And I love what the prophetic can do. And I've seen so many times a prophetic word just turns a person's life around. But I've also seen uh, so much, uh, for lack of a better word, goofiness with the prophetic. There are some websites that constantly have prophecy of revival here, revival there, and they've been doing it for decades but yet if you ever follow up on it, you find that none of those words have really come to pass. And I believe that with the prophetic, we need credibility. And I'm not saying it's a sin for a prophetic person to make a mistake, but when we do make a mistake, especially a big word with hopefully a lot of impact, with a lot of visibility, there needs to be the wherewithal to come back and say, hey, we thought we were hearing from the Lord, please forgive us, we missed it. And that brings credibility. But I think in many circles, the prophetic has been, just been reduced to almost like charismatic or Pentecostal entertainment, that as long as something is being said in the name of the Lord, people get emotionally all excited, but there's never any reality to it. And I believe we need to take the prophetic very, very seriously. Mark, those are good points you're making. Do not be put off by those blank looks you're getting right now. <laughs> There's a, a story, uh, I don't know what you call them in Canada, but in the United States, in some very remote rural areas, we have a group of people we call hillbillies. And uh, do you have hillbillies in Canada? You call them rednecks, we call them that too. But rednecks usually have major attitude, that's a that's a different thing in the States. But uh, hillbillies are normally very nice people, hardworking, good ethically, but uh, just... You know, uh, just a little bit out of the loop, you know, and not very sophisticated. And there's this elderly hillbilly couple in their 70s, and they've lived all their lives up in the mountains, no electricity, no cities, no villages, nothing. And they would come down to the big city about once a year to get supplies and stuff. The big city only had 5,000 people, but it might as well be London or New York for them. And uh, they've had a total of 15 children. And finally, their youngest, their son, is about to turn 21. And they know that when their son leaves them, when he turns 21, he's going to go out into the big, wide world. And they're a little bit worried for him because all he's ever known is life up the mountains. So they decide for his 21st birthday, they're going to take him down to the big city for a birthday lunch. So they load up this old, battered pickup truck. They spend about an hour or two driving down these dirt roads, past cliffs and everything, they come to the big city. And uh, they ask around, where's the best restaurant for our son's lunch? And they find it's in this new five-story hotel building. And they've never seen anything higher than a double-decker, you know, log cabin. And here's this five-story building. It's just, you know, huge to them. So they pull up in front, and uh, the husband, the old guy, says to his wife, woman, you wait here. We're going to go in and see if this restaurant's good enough for our boy, and if it is, we'll come get you. So he and his son, they walk into the foyer of this hotel, and they see something going on they can't quite figure. There's these shiny metal doors that people walk up, push a button, these shiny metal doors open up, and they can see this little room inside. This little room has no doors, no windows, and people get into this shiny, uh, walk into that little room, the shiny metal doors close, and then, you know, nothing happens for a couple minutes, and then the doors open up, and the people are gone. They can't quite figure out where they're going to. And then it gets even more bizarre because people walk in there, and a couple minutes later, the doors open up. A different group of people come walking out. And they're just, you know, spellbound by this. And finally, this one really old lady, she's about 110, just barely alive. She walks slowly across, you know, the floor and with a walker. She hobbles into that uh, uh, little room. The doors close. A minute later, the doors open up. This beautiful 22-year-old girl, very attractive (laughs) desk, walks out. And the father turns to his son and says, quick boy, go get your mother. (laughs) I think that uh, that's how we treat the prophetic sometimes. We think that if we can just get that magic word, it's going to change everything we want changed in our life. But it's my belief that probably only about 5% of all prophetic words that God gives are what we would call a sovereign word, meaning God says, I am going to do this. 95% of all prophetic words, I think, are what we'd call conditional words that are conditional upon you and I being obedient to the Lord. A prophetic word, whether it comes to you as a dream or a vision or what I call a prophetic nudge, It doesn't look like much when it first happens, and I equate it to a little seed. If you hold a seed in your hand, it just looks like what it is, a little piece of dead wood. But you take that seed and you plant it, you cover it over with dirt, and you water it and you give it nutrition, a miracle begins to take place. How we water prophetic seeds is we pray into them. And that's a little bit hard for the church in this day and age because, in this church in this day and age, we have a very short attention span. We pray for something for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, even. It doesn't pan out. We think, oh, well, God wasn't in it. We had a remarkable healing uh, about uh, two years ago in Florida, in Venice Beach, Florida. On one Sunday night, three different people that had been in wheelchairs for a long time got out and were completely healed. But one of the women who got out of the wheelchair was really remarkable what happened to her because she was in her early 70s, and she'd been having to use either a walker or a wheelchair for 40 years. For 40 years since her accident, she had not been able to take more than three steps without a walker, without falling down, and most times she was in a wheelchair. But the interesting thing about her was that she and her husband were actually part of a huge ministry team uh, that focused on healing, that she and her husband would drive to other states and they'd help out in seminars teaching about healing. And over the last couple of decades, she had prayed for many, many people who had been healed of leg problems, hip problems, uh, knee problems, all sorts of things. But yet, after getting prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer and praying for herself for 40 years, she had not been healed. But that night was her night. And with the prophetic, along with healing, there's a mystery that God answers prophecy that he inspires. He fulfills prophecy, I should say. And he also answers prayer for healing, but he doesn't always do it in our timing. And there's this whole art to what Jesus talked about, about seeking and asking and knocking. And I think sometimes in our contemporary value of wanting everything shiny and new and wanting everything to be comfortable, we don't understand the sovereignty of God, that he doesn't always cause problems, but sometimes he allows problems in our life to prepare us for a future moment of breakthrough. And there's a whole message there that probably most of you are all on top of anyway, but we don't have time for it. But just let me say this, that... If the enemy cannot starve you with failure, he'll stampede you with success by bringing success before you're really ready for it. Because a lot of times the success you have, it's like the building that goes up and up and up. But if the foundation is not deep, it cannot support the success. And so we look at people like David, we look at people like Joseph, we look at people like Daniel that went through difficult times, at the end of the day, they realized it was preparation for the future call. So I'm not, I'm not saying that God is masochistic, but what I am saying is that whether we're going through a breakthrough time or whether God's preparing us for a breakthrough time, it's always time to praise God and it's always time to seek him. And so timing is everything. But having said that, I shared a little bit last night that I felt like the Lord had said that... Um, I'm the person who needs a stand. Why are you giving it to him? <laughs> I'm messing with you. But I, I felt like the Lord told me, and I spoke a little bit last night, that as a church, I feel like you've been in uh, about a seven or maybe eight-year winter. And that's not necessarily because of anything wrong you've done, but long winters are preparation for great springs, and you're about to come into it. But I also believe that involves a, a waking up a fresh stirring in your hearts for what the Lord has for you. We've all heard of the frog in the kettle scenario, that, you know, the frog gets thrown into a pot with lukewarm water, and he doesn't jump out because it's quite comfortable. But as the heat's put on, the water gradually and gradually and gradually gets hotter and hotter, and the frog never jumps out. And at the end, he ends up boiling to death because it was so gradual, the changes, he didn't realize it. Now, that is not exactly what happens to some churches, but metaphorically, in a way, it does. It's because we have, this, uh, um, uh, we have this capacity that we like to camp out at yesterday's successes. We like to make monuments to yesterday's successes, and we like to try to take the way in which we worked yesterday's success and turn it into a methodology. And God never does the same thing twice. And it's a little bit like the manna that God gave the Hebrew people. One of the conditions was do not save any of it for tomorrow. And Moses said if you save for tomorrow, it's going to become maggoty, worm-infested, and moldy, all sorts of things. Because the compassions of God are new every day. And he wants us to seek him daily, to trust him daily. This is the side that's really Pentecostal. I don't know what's with you, so... (laughs) So I'm just going to focus on this crowd over here, <laughs> just messing with you. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that we really, uh, you're really come into a season where God wants to stir you all that he's about to do far more than you can think or ask, and it has to do with ears to hear and eyes to see. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus said to the church there, "'Wake up and strengthen what remains.'" And that the things that are going to remain, despite the fact that we don't always see it clearly, is the kingdom of God. Now, you and I, you know, I live in California. We live in North America, and I do most of my ministry in the Western world, whether it's North America or the UK or uh, Western Europe or Scandinavia. I do go to Asia and Africa a bit. But we're not seeing so much happening with the kingdom of God. But yet... When you look at South America, when you look at Africa, and when you look at Asia, especially India and China, the rate at which people are coming to Christ Jesus today is 300% greater than any other time in all of church history. And despite the fact that we see so much of a cultural challenge in the Western nations to Christianity, I would like to suggest to you that I think that people like John and Charles Wesley or George Whitfield. I believe that if they could have, they would have been alive today because we're on the edge of just incredible things. Uh, As I said, most of my ministry is just all over the world, but sometimes when I'm home in Southern California and I look at all the stuff going on, it can be a bit discouraging. Now, in my church, and I'm going to talk about my home church a little bit later, Uh, based upon what the Lord gave us prophetically over 20 years ago, we've seen just amazing things happen, especially with teenagers in our culture. But even yesterday, I was looking at the news last night when I got in, a a 15-year-old boy was shot in a school parking lot and killed. And unfortunately, that sort of stuff is is not unusual. We just have so much uh, gang activity, so many broken families, so much alcohol and drugs. But when I'm going through discouragement, thinking, oh, God, you know, is this a losing battle? One of the verses I always use to encourage myself is out of Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah prophesied in verse 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the, cov- the government or the kingdom shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace." And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Just because you and I are not seeing it right now at this moment does not mean the word of God is not true. I don't know when that time is going to be. It will probably be different in different cities, different nations. But the time will come where, as has been prophesied, the, the, uh, the plowman will overtake the reaper. And whether we're in a wintertime culturally in the long run preparing for somebody else's spring or we're going to see that spring, it's going to happen. The nations will be given to Christ Jesus as an inheritance. But I believe right now for you as a church, the Lord's calling you to stir things up prophetically. And prophetically, I don't mean I'll prophesy over you and you prophesy over me. I'm convinced that so many churches that constantly want the words of the Lord, they need to stop seeking the words of the Lord, and they need to start seeking for the word of the Lord. What is the Lord saying at this time and this season? And that's not to say that personal prophecy is not important. You know, I, I just gave to you, I believe personal prophecy is very important. But even more than the words, we need to hear what is the Lord saying to the church at this time and season. In Song of Solomon, uh, Solomon wrote in that song there, he wrote the story and about the bride, and the bridegroom is knocking on the door, but he says on her behalf that I slept, but my heart was awake. And how many of you know that we can be functioning, but in a sense spiritually we can still be sleepwalking? We can be going through the motions, and we can even be enjoying the blessings to a degree, but yet there can be a spirit of slumber over our culture and even over the church. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound, but my beloved is knocking. And he said, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. But she said, I have taken off my garments. How can I put them back on? I have washed my feet. How can I put them back on? But finally, she gets up, And she says, my heart was thrilled within me. And she arose to open to her beloved. And she says, I opened my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone the way. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not getting all doom and gloom on you. I'm not saying that if you miss the exact second of God speaking to you, you lose it forever. I, for one, think God the Father is a very, very patient teacher Mark, that was a particularly good point you made. Do not be discouraged by those <laughs> blank looks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can get so worried about messing up prophetically or messing up, you know, praying for the sick. But when I teach on praying for the sick and learning to prophesy, I draw an illustration out of Psalm 37. And it's around verses 22, 23, I think. But it gives a picture where the psalmist said, even though we stumble, the Lord holds us by the hand. He will not be allow us to be hurled headlong. And so I, I kind of contextualize that, and I say, you know, picture a young couple. They've got their first child, little Johnny Jr. And let's say Johnny Jr. is maybe 10 months, and he's just taken his very first step that day. And so the mother gets on the phone, calls up John Sr. at work, says, get home as soon as you can. Little Johnny's taken his first step. So he gets home from work as soon as he can. He gets out the camcorder or the smartphone, stands about six feet away, and he's filming this. The mother kneels down behind him and says, okay, walk to daddy, walk to daddy. And, you know, he totters. We call him totters, right? Toddlers. And so he takes one step, takes a second step, and then he falls down. But you know what? The mother is right there with him. She doesn't allow him to hit his head on the hard ceramic floor. They don't allow him to hit his head in the sharp corner of the coffee table. And neither does the father pick him up and shake him and say, What's the matter with you? You took two steps. Why didn't you go the distance? No, they're just so excited that little Johnny Jr.'s learning to walk like they do. And let me tell you, the biggest mistake when it comes to prophecy is not giving a bad prophecy. The biggest mistake is not having the humility to learn from it. And so uh, with all this stuff, when I talk about uh, being in a slumber, I'm, I'm not saying this to you in a harsh way. I'm not saying in a judgmental way. But I'm saying that you as a church, you have a long history and you've got a lot of blessings here. Uh, I'm exposed to all sorts of worship and worship leaders all around the globe. I know all, you know all different styles and a lot of the who's who in the worship world. But I can honestly say I really liked your worship last night and tonight. There's a freshness about it that I, I think is uh, just priceless. And any church that has the quality you have, and I'm not just talking about the musicianship, or the quality of the singing, but I'm talking about how you people as a church, how you enter into worship. Any church that has that depth of worship that you have, you've got a lot going for you. So it's not as if you don't have a lot going for you, but here's the problem. And again, talking about that frog in the kettle, if we allow it to, yesterday's peak will become today's plateau, and it will become tomorrow's religious gutter. And that is true in every area of life. What manufacturers have begun to realize over the last 30 years, because of advertising, technology, competition, especially now with the internet, you can have today's best product, but if you are not already working on research and development for tomorrow's product, you're gonna lose that market. And I'm not saying that we need to be in some artificial competitive thing with the church down the road. But what I am saying is that God has so much more for you than you have any idea. And you dare not as a church just camp out feeling comfortable with the comfort other than the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, Hosea wrote, "'Sow for yourselves righteousness.'" Reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness on you. And it's interesting; not only did Hosea say this, but Jeremiah also said something very similar. And both with both of the prophets, they both said the same thing: break up your fallow ground. Now, I love David's prayer, Create in me a clean heart. But, again, when God works in your life, it's like prophecy. Just praying it and claiming it doesn't make it happen. You've got to respond to the Lord. And what Jeremiah and Hosea are saying is take responsibility for the fallow ground in your life. What is fallow ground? It's ground that belongs to you, but it's not fruitful. It's ground that belongs to you, but it's not fruitful. And do you know that God wants us to be fruitful in every area of our lives? The very first words he said to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. Scientists or astronomers, whatever they are, tell us that even the universe itself is constantly expanding. God created us to continually be increasing and discovering the talents and abilities within us. I think one of the great tragedies in the life of a church is sometimes a church is pastored by a leader that maybe in their 20s or 30s, they were a radical risk taker for evangelism or church planning or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, that church begins to have success. It gets a certain number. It gets a certain degree of notoriety in the body of Christ. And then all of a sudden, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they're no longer pioneering anything. They're no longer seeking more of the goodness of God, the grace of God. And I I think that's a tragedy. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I've been, I've ministered in churches before where you walk in and maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, they had an amazing move of the spirit and evangelism, and they still have a residue of that, but it almost feels like you've stepped into a spiritual museum. There's a celebration of what happened in the past not an excitement about what is the Lord doing and saying today. I was sharing a little bit with the leaders at a lunch meeting today that uh, Peter or Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountaintop, and they beheld all of a sudden Jesus transformed into his glory, and Moses and Elijah were there. And so Peter makes the understatement of the millennium. He says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he says, let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because really what he wanted to do was to commemorate the event of seeing Jesus in glory. You know, they didn't have video cameras back then, so he knew the time may come when offerings would be lean, so he could charge money for guided tours to see the glory spot, you know. It's not that different from stuff on the Internet today, is it? We won't go there, though. But... uh, it said while Peter was still speaking, and again, he's wanting to commemorate the event, a cloud came down, symbolic of the glory of God, and the father spoke out of it and said, this is my son. And then the father said, listen to him. In a sense, God was rebuking Peter. He was saying, Peter, I don't want you making a monument even to the breakthrough of five minutes ago. I want you to stay current with the current. I want you to stay current with what my son is saying to you. And I'm not saying we can't look back on the past and celebrate what God has done. I'm going to be talking a little bit about some things in the past in a few moments. We can celebrate those and use those as a yardstick. But the reality is this is the day the Lord has made. And if we're not pricing in upon God today, when are we going to do it? When will we have time to do it? I shared last night two of my life verses, 1 Corinthians 2.9, that uh, Paul said, For those that love the Lord, God has more for them than their eyes have seen, more than their ears have heard, more than we could possibly understand. But also Ephesians 3.20 and 21, give glory to the one who can do far more, say far more, far more, far more than we can think or ask. I believe every Christian ought to underline those verses in their Bible. And I know there's some Christians that don't believe in underlying things in their Bible. That's cool. But reach across and underline in somebody else's Bible because it deserves to be underlined. And so if God has far more for you than you have any idea, than you can conjure up, than you can strategize, and you can dream about, how in the world are you going to come into it? That's where the prophetic comes in. Joel prophesied about the people of this covenant, people like you and me. And he said, the young men and women will prophesy. The older ones will dream dreams. The young men will see visions. And those visions, those dreams, those words that God wants to they're not just to give us spiritual and, in, in, you know, some warm fuzzies. They're there to impart life. In uh, Nashville, Tennessee... In Franklin, Tennessee, actually, there's a church I go to uh, usually once a year. And the senior associate pastors, if that makes sense, (laughs) uh, their names are uh, Alan and AJ. And uh, I've known Alan and AJ for uh, a long time, and I want to tell you about AJ. When we lived in Toronto, Canada for six years, and when we first moved to Toronto in 1992, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit began in our church, I would do a a once-a-month meeting on a Sunday night, and we would just worship for about an hour, and then I'd speak a bit, and we'd have a long ministry time. And uh, this young girl, she was about 22 at the time. uh, I had never met her. Uh, Somebody brought her to a meeting. They got there very late. They were so late, they missed all the worship. I was already speaking. There were very few seats available. The only seats were kind of in the center, And you know how it is when you walk in really late in the meeting, everybody's looking at you, especially if you have to find seats right in the center. But uh, I want to tell you about A.J., what I found out later on. A.J., at 22 years of age, had tried to commit suicide three different times. The first time she tried to commit suicide, she was seven years old. To say she had a dysfunctional family is is an absurd understatement. Her mother was a full-on alcoholic that couldn't give any time energy to the kids. Her father was emotionally distant, unavailable for them. Two weeks before this night, uh, within a day or so, A.J. had walked into her father's office and found that her father had uh, shot a bullet between in, in his head and commit, killed himself. And uh, A.J.'s mother was so dysfunctional that A.J. had to take responsibility and and officially go to the morgue, identify the body, and she had to make the legal arrangements for the burial and everything. But this just put AJ, who would already was in suicidal-type depression, over the edge, and she began to have a break with reality. About a week after that, a week before this meeting, just to try to, you know, just get somewhere where she didn't have to think. She went to uh, one of the shopping malls in Toronto, and she's walking through that shopping mall, And she thinks she sees her father down at the end of the mall walking. And so she goes running, screaming down the mall, yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Only, of course, when she uh, runs up to this guy, of course, it's not her father. And she has a breakdown there and uh, breaks down crying, laying on the floor. Security had to physically carry her out of the mall. And so she's brought to this meeting about a week later. Now, I've never seen her before, and she's just kind of in the process of coming to Christ. And she comes into the meeting. She's nervous. Everybody's looking at her. She sits down in the middle of the crowd. But uh, it was one of those occasions the Lord stopped me in the middle of sermon. and I didn't mean to embarrass her. I didn't know her situation. But I said to her, uh, what is your name? And now she's really embarrassed. Everybody's really focused on her. And she said, my name is AJ. It's a simple one, not like yours or (laughs) yours. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, AJ, this is what the Lord says to you, that if you're going to throw your life away, why not throw it in the hands of Jesus and see what he'll want to do with it? And I said, the Lord also says to you, your dad is gone, but God the Father wants to be your father now. Her initial response, because she's just coming into the things of Christ and she had never experienced prophecy, was she was convinced that the woman who brought her had called me before the meeting and told me about her situation. And she's angry, but at the same time the Holy Spirit's doing some things and she doesn't know what's up. And then we began to do a ministry time and I called the people up for some reason. I asked her to come up as well, but she was so nervous and upset she did not come forward but when we began to start praying for a bunch of people in the crowd she said Mark you didn't even come near me you were about five feet away walking in the aisle and she said all of a sudden I this heaviness came on me and I didn't for the life of me know what was happening but I ended up sliding out of my seat and laying on the floor and then the worst part was I started laughing uncontrollably and she thought what in the world is wrong with me She said, I know I'm suicidal. I know I'm having a break with reality, but why aren't these why isn't somebody here calling the the paramedics? I need to be locked up, you know, in the the, you know, the psych ward or something. But when she got up off the floor about 45 minutes later, and most people had left the meeting, she said, from that time on, she has never ever suffered from depression. Her bulimic problems that she suffered with were gone. Her insomnia that she suffered with were gone. And she's had the peace of God ever since. She went on about 10 years later. She got married. Uh, She and her husband now have three children. And she and her husband have ministered in at least 20 countries, preaching on the, the Father heart of God to the nations. And God's hand is just all over her. But there she is, struggling with suicide, having breaks with reality, struggling with just deep, deep depression. But this prophetic word, even as Mark said, that the sword of the spirit, it cuts between the soul where all the issues are, all the questions, all the emotional realm, and it releases life into the spirit. And the prophetic, it opens us up to the more that God has for us, more than we have any idea. And sometimes I'd like to suggest to you that we don't enter into the more that God has for us because, as James said, we do not have because we do not ask. I'm not talking about asking God, God do this or God do that. That's our normal intercessory prayer. But I'm talking about I want to challenge you as a church and I don't know what this might mean to you. It might mean just doing on your own as couples or as family or as individuals in your spare time in the morning or late at night or maybe actually having some times of worship and waiting upon the Lord. But taking some time intentionally in the next couple of months and waiting upon the Lord, saying, Lord, you have words for us. You have dreams for us. You have visions for us. You have nudges you want to give us that are about to increase. This whole point of what James said that we do not have because we do not ask was really powerfully impressed upon me one time. And this is, again, shortly after we had moved to Toronto. There was a church in Barrie, Ontario, that invited me to come and do two nights of meetings. I had never been with this church before, and um, it's about maybe a 90-minute drive from where we live. I'm driving up there the first night. And I really hadn't had a lot of time to prepare, but I'm praying about what to speak on. And as I'm getting a sense of speaking of things, and I began to pray about the ministry, I said, Lord, it would be great if you would do a creative miracle tonight. Not just a healing, but something that's destroyed in somebody's life, like a withered limb or blind eye or someone who has a stomach organ destroyed by cancer or something. Lord, it would be great if you would do a creative miracle. And I'll never forget this. The Lord said to me, why not? Turn to the person next to you and say, Why not? <laughs> And so, as I'm driving, in my mind's eye, I get this picture of a man's skeletal system. And in the skeletal system, there were steel rods going up and down the legs, going from like uh, below the calf up above the knee, about halfway up the thigh and on both legs. And then on both feet and ankles, there were uh, L-shaped metal plates holding the bottom feet bones to the ankle bones. And uh, the Lord said, this is the man I want to do the miracle with, that his, he has steel rods and plates in his joints and his legs. He can't walk. And I kind of said, Lord, could we just start off with maybe just one steel rod? Do we have to go for the four-in-one deal? But the Lord said, no, this is what I want to do. So we end up, get there, we have the worship, preach, and, you know, and then we're praying for people, praying for a lot of things. The Lord brought this picture to my mind. And I said, I know this sounds absurd, but is there a man here that you've had to have both your legs and feet operated on? They've put steel plates in your legs, legs, feet and ankle, and rods going up and down your legs. And from the back of the crowd, this big guy gets up. He's about as tall as me, but you could fit about three or four of me into him. And he comes slowly walking up with a walker, and his legs are just completely stiff like this. And he slowly comes up, and we found out afterwards, uh, I'd never met him, but his name is Don Lindsay, still alive today. And um, he, had, he had been in the Hell's Angels, and he had several times gotten drunk and gotten his bike. And the last time he did that, over 10 years before, that before this night, he'd been in a very bad accident, and both of his legs were run over and the bones were pretty destroyed. And so they had to put rods to hold what was left of his bones together, just so he could walk with a walker. He comes up and we begin to pray for him. The power of the Holy Spirit comes on him. I, I, I asked some ministry team people to continue praying for him. And I'm going on, I'm praying for other people now. But all of a sudden I see something at the back of the room, and it's this guy, Don, and he's running, jogging back there. Obviously, with flexibility, his legs, and I say, Sir, would you come up here? He runs around the side, he comes up and he's jumping up and down. And I said, obviously, God has done something. And he told us the testimony of what had happened 10 or 12 years before. And he said, I have not been able to walk. Even just walking, my legs were have been completely stiff with a walker for all this time. And when I, when I pray for people and they say they've experienced a miracle, I really like to test it. Um, uh, we're really good at, uh, at hyping things in the church, aren't we? Not you all. I'm talking about the church down the road, you know. But uh, I I believe when it comes to creative miracles, we should try to get some documentation, you know, uh, before we broadcast things. So I like to test things. Like if someone, if I pray for people with a deaf ear and they say they're healed, I'll have them face the other direction. I'll turn off the mic and I'll stand about 10 feet away. And I'll say, now, cover your good ear tightly and I'll say, ask them a question in a low voice. And if they can answer that, I'll get further and further away. I was doing that with a guy in Norway that got healed of deaf ears one time, and he's answering all these questions. I said, Well, what color is the jacket you're wearing? And he said, I don't know, I'm colorblind. <laughs> so you've got to be careful what questions you ask. But, but I said to this guy, Don Lindsay, I said, So do something else that you couldn't do before. And he said, Well, I've had no flexibility in my back or hips at all. I said, Watch this. And he bends over and he touches his uh, toes. But as I said, he was kind of a hefty guy. And as he did that, the back of his pants ripped right open. And he didn't care. He went jogging around the room again. It looked like the full moon had risen in Ontario, you know. And uh, he, he, I mean, he was just beside himself. And he ran out the double doors of the sanctuary, went jogging in the parking lot. And, you know, a couple years later, Don and his wife Gwen, they started a small church in Wasaga Beach, um, uh, Ontario, and for 20 years or so, maybe 18 years, they pastored this church. And it was never a huge church, but they did an amazing amount of ministry to alcoholics and drug addicts because Don and his wife could relate to the crowd there. And uh, not you crowd, but crowd over there wherever Wasaga Beach is. And uh, uh, but you know, and, and Don would go into the federal penitentiary there and minister to prisoners about to come out, you know. And Don had a future and a destiny, both he and his wife Gwen ahead of him, but there needed to be someone in the loop that was crazy enough to ask for something they had never seen before. And I didn't say, Lord, would you heal someone with steel rods in their legs, I I couldn't even imagine that, but just going before God, saying, God, would you do a creative miracle? And I think sometimes when we think back about that frog in the kettle, you know, that we get used to the status quo. And even if the blessings are there at a certain level, that will become tomorrow's religious gutter if we allow it to. So Joel prophesied that the people of this covenant, the young men and women, the older ones, that we dream, we'd prophesy, we'd get things from the Lord. In 1990, in January... I had uh, done the first ministry trip I'd ever done from San Diego where we lived at the time to uh, Toronto. Actually, not to Toronto, but to Stratford. And uh, a church asked me to come and do a prophetic uh, conference there, and we did it. The conference ended Sunday morning, and the pastor said, by the way, we're starting a, a new church plant in Toronto about 90 minutes away, and he said, Mark, I know you're flying out tomorrow, but would you go with us tonight and speak, speak at this small church we're starting in Toronto? And uh, and uh, then you can fly out tomorrow. I said, sure. So we're driving along this hour and a half drive. Now, I had never met this senior pastor before, up until three days before. And he said to me, you know, Mark, my wife and I, we love the prophetic and ministering the spirit. We've really in, enjoyed watching how you've ministered to people. And he said, I know this is a long shot, but would you and your wife even be open to praying about moving from San Diego to uh, Toronto and help us in our leadership team with the gifts of the Spirit and help us develop this church? In my mind, I said, you must be stupid. Why in the world would I leave San Diego that has one of the best climates in the world and uh, move to some place like Toronto that's in the land of socialism? I'm just messing with you. (laughs) That you have this thing called snow and cold weather, you know, and, you know, and I, I just said into myself, I, I know God's not in that, but be, to be polite, I said, sure, I'll pray about it. Well, I got back to San Diego, and, uh, you know, just to be honest, I prayed about it at least once or twice. And unfortunately, it didn't go the way I was hoping it was going. It didn't go the way I was sure it was going. God began to say, yeah, I'm into this. And I'm, in a, I'm a big believer that if you're married, that both partners we have to partner in major decisions that there's a oneness that god will speak to both of us i'm just trying to do a bit of marriage counseling for some of you guys here Uh, so i was sure that when i asked my wife to pray about it she would say no god's not in it but she prayed about it to my surprise she said you know i think god could be in this so the next step was and this is like 1990 you know halfway through 90 or so uh, was to go to the, the two guys that we'd started a church with in San Diego. And when we started in 86, we started from scratch, and now we've got about three 400 people, a lot of young people getting saved, a lot of good things are happening. And I said, you know, I was with the church a while back in Ontario, and they asked me to pray about moving back there. And I said, I know it's strange, but I said, I, I think God's into it. And they wanted me to continue the international ministry, but when I was home, do leadership stuff there. And they said, Mark, that makes no sense whatsoever. You helped start this church. You've got good support from the church. Your family's all in send you. You've got great weather. You're moving to a foreign country. (laughs) Don't you love how some people in the States think about Canada? You know, I lived in Canada for six years. The first thing I realized when I moved here is why do people in the States say we're Americans? People in Mexico are Americans. People in Canada are Americans. But there you go. Friend, friend of mine from Vancouver, a worship leader, was down in LA ministering a conference. Some guy came and said, "So you're from Canada?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Do you live in an igloo?" You know, it just, it just gets weird sometimes. But anyway, but you know, I said, well, "Why would you move there? You got such great support, and the church is taking off. It's growing like crazy." I said, "I don't know," but, but. We agreed to take 60 days and pray about it. We came together in a leaders' meeting at the church and talked about it in 60 days. And they both said the same thing Mark, we don't understand it, but we feel like God wants us as church and leadership to bless you and Kim to make this move. So in May of 1992, we made the move. I and one of the pastors from the small church in Toronto flew out. We drove a truck with all of our stuff, my wife and two daughters drove or flew flew out there and we drove the truck they flew and we got there in time to do a prophetic conference and at this prophetic conference i think i mentioned it last night that's when the lord gave me this open vision i saw what turned out to be a four-page prophecy of niagara falls coming down from heaven over the city of toronto and god said i'm going to pour out my spirit and he said it's going to happen in late 93 early 94 and it's going to go to the nation something that toronto has never experienced And sure enough, that move the Spirit hit in January of 1994. And they estimate that between the time it started to the year 2000, that somewhere between 4 and 5 million people literally walked the doors of that church. They first began to come from the UK and then Germany, from all over Europe, from the ends of the earth. Even people from the underground church in Cambodia and Vietnam came and visited that, and it's still having an impact internationally today. But here's the point I want to make that when uh, Dave and Mark, the two senior guys that I worked with that we started the church with, when they prayed about it and they heard from the Lord, they said the same thing that my wife and I are saying we don't understand it, but we feel God is in it. Well, as soon as the outpouring began, I called them up, and I said, guys, get back here as soon as you can. God's just incredibly meeting with people here. So they bought two-week advance purchase airline tickets, and they came out. They spent seven nights there and just an amazing amount of carpet time in the presence of the Lord. They went back to San Diego, and they had special meetings every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for a year and a half And they estimate that in their church in San Diego, over 75,000 Christians came from all over San Diego, were powerfully touched by the Lord. But the second day they were there, we went out to lunch after they'd encountered the Holy Spirit the night before. And we were sitting there eating, and they looked at me and said, Mark, we didn't understand a year and a half ago when the Lord said, yes, you're to go. But now we understand it. And you see... I'm not saying that when God speaks to you, when he gives you a vision, when he gives you a dream, when he gives you a prophetic nudge, I'm not saying there's never understanding with it, but it is very much like that seed. You hold the seed in your hand, and it's very unimpressive, but it's like our lives. Jesus said, die to yourself, fall to the ground, be buried like that seed, and if you do, you will bear much fruit. And sometimes we don't see very much when we look at our lives. But if we will take hold of our cross and die to ourselves, it's amazing what God can bring forth. Now, about this same time frame, our church that we started in San Diego, we had a huge vision for teenagers. And we were going after teenagers and people in the early 20s big time, and we were seeing a lot of uh, teenagers getting saved. But uh, one day, about two months before we moved to Toronto, we're having an elders' meeting, leaders' meeting in our church. There were about five or six of us in leadership. And one of the two senior guys, one of the th- two guys I'd started the church with, his name is Mark. He's one of my best friends still today. He sat down and he said, I don't know how everybody's going to feel about this, but I feel like God has given me a prophetic strategy for our church. Now, all three of us, we had kind of gotten saved in the Jesus movement in California in the 70s when there were literally a couple hundred thousand counterculture people between 15 and 30 were getting saved. It was just wild what was happening. But by 1992, we're realizing even 25-year-olds in California, the hearts are getting hardened, and it's harder and harder to reach our generation and so we'd come to an agreement that if we were going to reach our culture, we had to go for teenagers. And so Mark said, I don't know how, how everybody's going to feel like this, but I feel like God's given me a strategy that as a church, we're to rent an off-campus location, a small storefront in a strip mall somewhere, and we're to fill it uh, with like pool tables, ping-pong tables, foosball machines, and we're to train some volunteers from our church to do low-key relational evangelism And we're to have a safe place for high school kids to hang out with from after school hours to about 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Because so many kids in our community were being lured into uh, crime, drugs, and gangs because they were coming from broken families. And they were just basically living on the streets after school. We didn't have the money for it, but as we prayed about it, we really felt God say Yes. And so we rented our first storefront property. We trained some volunteers from our church. And there were just three rules, basically. The first rule was you could not be packing a knife or a gun. I know it sounds funny, but that's a reality. We're our part of the world. The second rule was you couldn't get in a fight. And then the third rule was you couldn't do a lot of swearing. But we trained the volunteers not to preach to the kids, but to just be there for them. And we trained them in relational evangelism. And then there were a couple of uh, uh, steps. The first step was if one of the students or one of the teenagers gave their life to Christ, they would agree to be mentored by one of our volunteers that were trained to do that. And then secondly, to go beyond that, become part of a group discipleship program. That was in 1992 we started that. Today we have seven youth ventures. And we have literally seen probably between 3,500 and maybe 5,000 teenagers come to Christ. We have seen the very fabric of East San Diego County, El Cajon, transformed by the kingdom of God. When we started that church in El Cajon, East Senior County, it was labeled the crystal meth capital of the United States because so much crystal meth was being manufactured and distributed nationwide there. That is no longer true. Although there's still for sure drugs and things in in, uh, East County, we have seen the back of that principality broken. We have seen, I'm not exaggerating, family after family after family of drugged out families, couples, husbands, wives saved because they saw such a transformation in their teenager, they would invite the volunteers from Youth Venture to come to the house. In fact, one of the Youth Venture locations about 10 years ago, the directors of it, a husband and wife couple, they had gotten saved for that very reason because they saw their child, their teenager, get saved and such a change, they invited the volunteers to come to the house, share the gospel with them, and then they got discipled, and they end up leading one of them. But what's really exciting, now i was sharing this with the leadership group today, About uh, 10 years ago, an American who's given his life to um, apostolic ministry in Kenya uh, has a bunch of churches there in Kenya. He contacted us about 10 years ago, and he said, I've heard about your youth venture uh, clubs. He said, we need that in Kenya. Would you be willing to send a team to our church and train on that? And we said, absolutely. So we sent over a team and now, in their churches now, for about 10 years, they've been doing Youth Venture. But about four years ago, the cabinet member of the government of Kenya, who's in charge of education, contacted that uh, guy, Larry Nice. and he said, I've seen what's happening in your churches with teenagers and Youth Venture, which is a very Christ-based discipleship program. He said, we need that in our public high schools. And so Larry called us up, and we've been sending over teams now for four years, training Secular high school teachers how to do a Christ-based discipleship program. And this year, Larry estimates conservatively that over 100,000 teenagers in secular high schools are going to go through this Christ-based discipleship program. And here's what they found, that in the Kenyan kids who go through it, there's over a 90% reduction in pregnancy outside of marriage and over a 90% reduction in dropping out of school. And that we are seeing it's going to impact the next generation of an entire nation. Because if you know anything about that part of the world, even to get a high school education, it's a premium. And if you go through it and all of a sudden you've got some discipline and structure in your life, there's a much better chance of getting to college. And kids in that part of the world that graduate from college, they become the ones who lead the nation. You know, Some things we take for granted are, are just very hard to come by over there. And we're now starting the same thing in Cuba with a bunch of churches we relate to. But in 1992, when God gave us this direction, it was just like a seed, a little piece of dead wood. But you know what? 2,000 years ago, Jesus embraced a piece of dead wood. And today, there's close to a billion people that call him Lord and Savior and to us what can just seem so simple a prophetic word or a dream or a vision well how's it going to happen how are we going to f- you don't know all of that you know we love our garments you know that have every detail in it god doesn't give maps like that he gives compass settings and he says get out of the boat and walk on water you know but that's that's what the prophetic it, it really is and i believe that for you as a church it's uh, It It really is a time, and this, and again, I'm not saying this in any sort of critical way whatsoever. I'm saying this in an encouraging way. Whatever ground you have in your life as a church that you realize you're not bearing as much fruit as you should, it's time to break that up, and it's time to seek the Lord. And I know that uh, from what I, little I know about the history of the church, but just as I've gotten to know Mark a bit since meeting him and uh, in november in jerusalem and the conversations we have had on the phone and thing i know that you put a great value on prophetic and i want to i wanted to use this message tonight to stir you up that i believe that whatever winter you've been through as a church and you know even during winter time things can grow but in a springtime that's when th- new things begin to bloom and bud isn't it And this is the prophetic word I have for you. You're going to see new things budding and new things blooming. And the word the Lord gave me for the body of Christ back in December for 2017 and 18, it's a time for Holy Spirit innovation. It's a time for Holy Spirit creativity. And it's a time for Holy Spirit investment. I'm not saying go out and do some things just to do it. But hear what the Lord has to say to you. And then, like our church in San Diego did, invest in it. And you know what? It might not seem like much. I had been living in Toronto for about six months or a year, and I got a call from Mark Hoffman, the guy in our church in San Diego who initiated this program. And he called me up. He was really excited. He said, this morning, a businessman showed up at our church that doesn't go to our church and wanted to see one of the leaders. And he said, I was kind of tied up. I was the only one there, so reluctantly I came out to meet with him. And he said, you don't know me. I don't go to your church, but I've heard what you're doing for teenagers in the community. He said, I want to help. And he gave the church a check for $10,000. That same day, about four or five hours later, another business person showed up, said to the receptionist, I want to talk to one of the pastors. This time he came running out. (laughs) And... uh, the guy literally said the same exact thing. He said, you don't know me. I don't go to your church, but I've heard what you're doing for teenagers. I want to help. He wrote us a check for $50,000. So all of a sudden, we had not even had money to start the first one, and all of a sudden, we've got 60000 bucks. Guess what we did? We started a second one. And I know you know this. It's, it almost goes without saying, but where God gives vision If we will walk in obedience, he will give supernatural provision for that. And so we water that seed when we receive it in our hearts through prayer, but you give it nutrition through obedience in the small steps. And that's why the prophet said, do not despise this day of small beginnings. Are you still alive? Okay, good. So, before we go into ministry, I, I didn't do this last night. I was telling Mark that my wife runs a small company we own called Mark DuPont Publications. It's our books and CDs. And whenever I get home from a trip, she says, did you promote the stuff? <laughs> and I say, well, I did some of it. The problem is, like last night, I'm so excited about worship and what the Lord wants to do. I, I don't want to mess with it. But, but I'll take a good 45 minutes now. No, uh, <laughs> Let me take five minutes um, one of the uh, books I, and actually a good friend of mine, an, an uh, Anglican guy in the UK wrote, is called Healing Today, When the Blind and the Lame Walk. And you know, there's a million and one good books on healing, but we wanted to write something for everyday Christians, practical application about how to move not only in healing, but in miracles. And we have a lot of stories in here, but more importantly, we theologically, we talk about why God is in the healing business, And we talk about some things like why sometimes there's delayed answer to prayer and all sorts of things. As well, we did a couple different models of different ways of praying for the sick. And there's been some churches that have even used this as a training manual for their ministry teams. That's available there. Uh, One of my favorite books I've written is a thin one, but that's not why it's a favorite. But it's called Becoming the Friend of God. And it's based upon four situations in the life of Abraham and it's it's interesting, Abraham is the only person in both the Old and New Testament that God called his friend. So many people they want the title of prophet or apostle or pastor, but wouldn't it be cool if when we're standing before the Lord at the judging of the saints, and Jesus says to the Father, This one has been our friend? And so we talk about the bridal paradigm, we talk about sonship in Christ, but I think we also need a paradigm for understanding what it means to be the friend of God. Uh, the last book we've written that's published is called Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown. And uh, the, this is based upon Psalm 37, where it says the righteous will prosper even during the times of famine. And this is not a book that just is a quick fix, uh, grab hold of the promises, but we talk about the ways of God. Because it's not just a matter of taking all the promises, but it's walking in the ways of the word. I love what Moses prayed, Lord, teach me your ways that I might know you. And so we talk about things like uh, kingdom living is in the giving. That we talk about keys, that if we understand it, we can walk in those things, and God's promises begin to kick in. And we have two different CD sets. There's two CDs within each set, and one is called Miracles Today. We talk about biblically understanding miracles but also realizing and experiencing them because I'm a big believer that it's not just prophets and evangelists and whoever. I believe God wants to use all of us for the miracle. Can I tell you one quick story before we pray? About four of you are excited. That that thrills me. Uh, We did a a conference in Taiwan uh, in Taichung uh, two Novembers ago on miracles for three days. And we did see a number of good things happen, but the coolest testimony I found out about a week and a half later, one of the elders sent me an email, and there was a lady who came every day to the conference. She herself did not um, need a miracle, but she was just taking in the conference, and she wasn't part of the ministry team, wasn't in leadership, just part of the church was there. And about a week after the conference ended, she was at a swim hall. She used to go to the swim hall about three times a week for a swimming exercise. And she was sitting on a bench outside waiting for her husband to pick her up. And on the opposite end of the bench, this uh, old guy just collapses and falls over. And there's kind of glass walls there from the inside of the swim hall. And the crew working there sees him falls over. They run out, and they're trying to do CPR and all this time to, uh, stuff to resuscitate him. But the guy's not breathing, not breathing. He's starting to turn blue. And she's just sitting there quietly at the bench in her heart, interceding, Lord, would you bless this guy? But all of a sudden, she said the light bulb went on, and she said, wait a minute, I just sat through a conference for three days hearing that God still does miracles. So she kind of awkwardly pushed her way through the crowd that's trying to do CPR on this guy, put a hand on his chest and said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke death, come back to life. And the old boy just sat up and breathing. And... Uh, You know, I thought this is really indicative of the day and age we're in, that you don't really have to mess around so much with just starting out with knees and back shoulders. You can just go the deep end of the pool, you know, and go for the miraculous. It made me really jealous, you know. But but this is really, I I think, what we're coming into, you know, where there's going to be an increasing freedom as we uh, learn the ways of God. Are you still alive? Okay. Let's all stand. We are going to pray for some sicknesses and various uh, physical problems in a few moments. But uh, I feel like there's an impartation of the Holy Spirit here, of the gift of faith. How many of you that when Mark gave that invitation during worship to just come forward, how many of you felt like you uh, really ended up meeting with the Lord that came forward? Anybody? Raise your hand. One person. Wow, I'm excited. Two of you, just close your eyes and lift your hands up to the Lord, and would you pray out loud after me, Father God, God, I thank you tonight tonight because you are a good God, God. you're a good Father, father. you have more for me me. than than my eyes have seen, more than my ears have heard, So I give glory to you because you can do far more than I can think or ask. So would you give me spiritual ears to hear, eyes to see, and I ask that you would speak to me over the next few months. Would you begin to give me dreams, visions, prophetic nudges, open doors, favor to do things I've never done before, to meet people I've never met before, to say things I've never done before. Lord, I thank you that when you created me, you did it with great intentionality You've put gifts and talents within me, abilities that I've only scratched the surface of. Would you begin a divine awakening in me to bring about your divine purposes right here in Alberta, Canada? Lord, we don't want to wait for revival. We want to become the revival. We're not waiting for a fire starter. We say, here are we. Light us on fire, God. Right where you're at, just allow the power of the Holy Spirit to come over you. Just take in the power of the Holy Spirit right now in the name of Jesus. Just take in the power of the Holy Spirit right where you're at. Sometimes with some people, the Holy Spirit comes as a still, gentle breeze. For others, the Holy Spirit may come like a mighty rushing wind. But you know what? God knows exactly what you need. So if the Lord's coming to you as a still, gentle breeze, just receive what He's breathing into you right now. But if God's coming to you like a mighty rushing wind, just be filled right now. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just take in the goodness of the Lord. Just take in the goodness of the Lord. There's some of you right now, you feel like there's a heaviness upon you. One of the words in the Hebrew for the glory of God, the Shekinah, the shekinah, it means the weight of His presence. Some of you feel like there's a heaviness upon you. Some of you can feel, in a sense, like the fire of the Holy Spirit is upon you. It may come across like a burning or an electrical tingling sensation. And all that means is the Lord is anointing you with His power. Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when John baptized Him. There's a prophetic baptism happening right here, right now. And there's some of you here, you may not be sensing anything in your physical body. But in your heart, you're experiencing what the psalmist said, deep calls to deep. You might not feel a heaviness of God's presence physically upon you, but deep in your heart, you know God is releasing something to you right now. You might not be getting it in your English language or whatever your native tongue is because sometimes when the Holy Spirit releases things, first comes the impartation and then comes the discernment about what He's imparting to you. And so you might not understand exactly what God's doing deep within your spirit, but all you know is right now you're in a place where from the depths of God's heart, He's releasing something to the depths of your heart. And if you are experiencing that right now, deep calling to deep, or maybe you feel the burning or electrical fire of the Holy Spirit upon you, or maybe you're trembling a little bit, or you just feel a heaviness of God's presence upon you, if you're feeling any of those things at all, deep calls to deep, or the power of the Holy Spirit upon you, I want to ask you to forget about everybody else that's here. And I want to ask you to come to the front right now because I just want to bless what God is doing in you. Just If that's you, just come to the very front and stand in a row, if you would. Stand in a line, or maybe we need two lines. I don't know. So, Lord, we say in the name of Jesus,
0: linger. Let this weightiness linger on us as we close this time and finish this evening. Father, I pray that you come upon us Uh, our minds and hearts as we sleep tonight that your spirit would open that creativity that innovation that capacity to make those investments that Mark was talking about but more than that Lord I say let this be a new day for each of us Amen Amen. Hallelujah. Well, feel free to linger. There's value in that. Like I said earlier with Joshua, long after Moses had departed from meeting with the Lord, Joshua stayed behind. He, he in, intuitively knew there was something about being in the presence that was restorative, regenerative. And so I bless you with that presence. Amen. And we're going to be meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock here, same place, same time. I think Mark's going to share some more. And um, if uh, you don't have a church home or if you want to visit us, you're welcome to do that. But I know that good portion of the people that are here tonight are from Spruce Grove community. But let me just say, expect more. Expect more. You know, so many times we we feel like God is punitive. And uh, we know what we do wrong. We know our weakness. But he says, he knows that we are dust. God knows that we are dust. And the very best we could furnish if we were the best people in the face of the world could not hold a candle to what he requires. So let's not even try. Let's just believe in the grace that he's provided for us. That he's willing. He says, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's happy to give you the kingdom. Father, give us a kind of faith that that audacious ability to believe that you love us, that you love enough to overcome all that's wrong with us. Some of us are so fixated on what we lack. We we can't look past to who you are. God, you are a great, great God. You are a good, good Father. That's who you are.